Hello and welcome to another episode of Coffee and Conservation, a laid-back podcast where we discuss everything from cool animals, conservation, the environment, and what we can do to help. I'm Robert Pike, a field journalist for the Global Conservation Force, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Veal, a world-renowned rhino conservationist and president of the Global Conservation Force. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Coffee and Conservation. My name is Robert Pike. I am joined by my co-host, Mike Veal. Today's special guest is Lindy Sutherland. Lindy is the director of the Karyaka Foundation in South Africa. Lindy, thank you for taking the time and meeting with us. Um, and if we could just start by maybe just telling us a little bit about yourself and and, and what you do on a, on a day-to-day basis uh, in the Karyaka Game Reserve. Thanks, Robert and Mike. It's really great to be with you guys. Um, and your audience. Um, so I'm the director of the Kareka Foundation, as you said. Um, I'm the fifth child of Colin Rashmir, who was the founder of Kareka Game Reserve back in 1989. Uh, Dad was actually a lawyer by profession and a nature lover, and the opportunity arose for him in 1989 um, to buy a very small farm in the Eastern Cape for development purposes, uh, and yeah, he, he bought that small farm. I, I think he might have had a vision at the time, but I think we've completely superseded what what his vision might have been at the time. So if you want me to to elaborate there a little bit, uh, Robert, um, yeah, just please. let me know, because, because actually that created something that ended up being a, a bit of a flop in the beginning but but his flop and his mistake became probably one of the one of the really strongest pillars within Karika Game Reserve which is now an 11 and a half thousand hectare protected wilderness with five luxury lodges that can sleep up to 180 guests at any one time mm-hmm. um, and a very active uh, Karika Foundation trust that authentically and meaningfully reinvests um, funds and time and energy into conservation and um, surrounding communities in the area. So it's become quite an amazing picture and vision. But should I start with the mistake right back please. in the beginning? Yeah, please. I was definitely going to ask. The mistake is is actually one of the, it's just, it feels like this is how a lot of conservation works. Like, uh, concept and or um, idea in theory, once it hits reality, even if it's good, it can be a real struggle. So I think it's good for people to know it's it's just not as easy as we did this. Uh, you know what I mean? There's there's a real road of, uh, of work. Um, just so everybody knows too, the, so the hectare mark, 11,500 hectares is uh, just about 27,600 acres. So that's a substantial area of space. Um, and so just wanted to throw that in there for context for everybody, uh, just in case there, we have folks on either side of, uh, the metric and standard for measures. So, uh, Lindy, this, this trial that your dad had was, uh, I know I've heard it, but it brings a lot of why there's so much character to so many of the lodges and the space at the reserve. Um, so 
Let's, yeah. let's hear how that went. <laughs> For sure, Mark. So as I mentioned, dad was a was a lawyer in a law firm in Port Elizabeth, and he was also always very interested in property. So th- this family who owned the farm, which was um, didn't yet have river access, it was on the R343, and it, it today is the site of, of Kariha Main Lodge and Okozi Lodge. They approached dad in his capacity as a lawyer and a property developer because they had subdivided 20 different um, lots of land on their farm. And their vision was to build 20 um, sectional title log cabin holiday homes that were on a, that was on a farm with maybe soft safari, um, antelope and zebra and, and the likes of those sorts of animals with walking and maybe some cycling. But that farm was is is 14 kilometers from Kenton on Sea, which is a really beautiful and quaint coastal resort in South Africa with, with some of the most beautiful um, beaches and also two beautiful tidal river estuaries, uh, the Karika River and the Bushman's River, that kind of cushion this this coastal town. So Dad jumped at the opportunity and ended up buying the farm from this family and building. 20 log cabin homes to essentially sell as sectional title holiday homes on a farm 15 minutes from the sea. And what happened was he managed to sell two, one to his father-in-law and one to his business partner at the time. And he was left with um, 18 homes that were empty (laughs) and he couldn't sell. So interestingly (laughs) enough at the time, this, in terms of the timing of the Eastern Cape, this was, I think, a year or two before Adrian Gardner bought the first farm for Shamwari and started mm. Shamwari. So dad was the very, very first pioneer of, actually, it wasn't ecotourism. It was, he was 30 years ahead of the curve of sectional title homes on beautiful properties, which now are all over South Africa and sell out before they've even been built. So he, he was... He was always ahead of his time. So what happened was he um, he was now sitting with twenty log cabin homes. So he went into he went into tourism for this local South African market, and he restocked and rewilded that small farm of six hundred and sixty hectares with various antelope and zebra. Um, he brought on giraffe. That was quite a story in itself, and started to get. Um, traction, well, I wouldn't say huge traction, uh, but he started to become quite popular in the local market as a getaway for South African families into nature, close to the beach, um, and it was all self-catering, and you could walk and you can cycle. And I I mean, I remember those days of, it was actually called Kariha Park, and it it ran like that for 10 years, and dad was still a lawyer at the time. Uh, He didn't let go of his day job because he couldn't. And he, he used to boast that it never cost him any money. He never made any money, but it never cost him any money. And that was um, that was really what the first 10 years of Kariha Game Reserve or Kariha Park at the time was about, from 1989 to around about 1999. That's so awesome. So just again, so everybody knows, um, in, in South Africa, a lot of folks or refer to a farm as a reserve or a wild space. So it's not goats and chickens on the farm or corn uh, grows. We're talking uh, what becomes like a wildlife space. And then uh, Lindy, you'd mentioned the sectional housing. Um, You know, it's interesting is we actually don't, I can't think of any that's like that in the United States, at least off the top of my head. 
Um, maybe the closest thing to it would be like if you owned some property adjacent to like a national park or a forest or something like that. But that's again, it's one of the very cool and unique things about um, primarily Southern Africa is you can almost buy into like what's like a wine country plot where you have, you know, this built in groves, except in the these wildlife estate style um, housing developments, you're buying a house that's like a little island in the middle of a small development inside a managed reserve space. And it may not have like lion prides and elephants in it, but it probably has everything else. Um, So that's a really cool little thing. And that definitely would have been, your dad would have been so, so far ahead of the curve uh, back when he was starting this with Karika and uh, the Karika park. So um, what it's transformed to though is pretty cool now. um, Cause even in the last 10 years, things have uh, changed quite, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. So, so, so it's my, been a big ride. Yeah, it has. And, and probably in those first 10 years, two really important things happened. The one really important thing that happened is that dad managed to, um, to knit together the first three or four farms. And, and really one of these days, you'll have to get one of my brothers on this podcast because they are much more in tune with the minute details of how this all happened. Um, but he managed to get two or three farms together and grow that initial land mass to 2,000 hectares. He brought on Tony Fuller as his partner, who was a farmer in the area. And Tony's children and obviously dad's children, we've all been integral in, in growing Karika to what it is t- today. But but most importantly, Tony, my dad, Mike Fuller, and my two brothers, Mark and Graham, were, were probably the most instrumental in that first 20-year history of Karika. So that 2,000 hectare kind of milestone that we reached was really important for two reasons. Um, number one, it, it was big enough for us to bring on White Rhino, which mm. is, uh, and Tandy was one of the first that, that we brought on. Number two, it gave us river access, which was really important in terms of ecotourism and what Karika is really today well known for, which is the combination of bush and river experiences. But in that time frame, what was happening in the Eastern Cape was that Adrian Gardner um, was re- being very brave and very bullish in growing shamwari and putting the Eastern Cape on the map in terms of an ecotourism destination for the Big Five. And that would have also cross-pollinated with Amakala at a similar time, round about 1999, Amakala would have started forming itself um, and launching itself as a big five-game reserve. So it was after that first 10 years that we transformed Main Lodge into a lodge that could service international guests, and we built the lodge and the restaurant so that we could start selling ourselves to the international market. And my brother Mark and I actually, I still remember it was round about 1999 that we reached out to, to our operators for the first time. And I think we, by the end of that year, had established relationships with about 20 to operators. We now have oh, wow. relationships with probably a thousand or more around the world. But it started with 20 to operators in about 1999. And I said earlier on that Dan's mistake became his biggest success because if you fast forward another 10 years. So we now we're at, we're at the 33 or 34 year history mark, which is today. 
Mm-hmm. The Kareka Game Reserve is, is 21 different farms that have been knitted together and rewilded. Um, the big five have all been reintroduced. But what has been really important is the commercial leveraged ability and success of being able to sleep as many as 180 guests across an 11,500 hectare protected area. So to put that into perspective, most people who start an ecotourism business will build a lodge or two lodges that can sleep maximum around about 36 guests. Mm-hmm. Because nobody is mad enough to go and build a lodge that can sleep 100 guests. But mm-hmm. dad's mistake was such that he had built 20 log cabins that could sleep up to 100 guests. And that that's enabled us to always be able to attract the group business and to always be able to offer Kariha as a value for money, four-star um, ecotourism destination. And we've obviously moved into the five-star um, market with Settlers Drift and Okozi Lodge and, Set- and, and River Lodge. But, but that economies of scale have created such success and, and from a commercial perspective. And what is really meaningful for me from a foundation perspective is that commercial entity creates a very significant budget for the Kareka Foundation Trust. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're selling 180 bed nights that are all contributing an extra 170 rand a night into a conservation trust, that equals a large budget every year. Um, and, and that's given the Kareka Foundation Trust proper traction uh, within conservation and also um, to be really meaningful in terms of our community work too. So that's a really good point right there. So, uh a lot of ways, I don't think a lot of folks understand that um, we, we hit this actually on the last podcast with Will. A private game reserve is not necessarily funded by a government entity or grants. Specifically in South Africa, you're, you're not going to have that guaranteed support. So when you're bridging an ecotour lodge and game reserve with a conservation wing like the Karika Foundation which one side is for-profit, one side is non-profit, which is actually a really common thing in the world, uh, having a for-profit company that has its sister or brother non-profit wing. Um, you can do this in more than one way. And one of the most sustainable ways for a company operation to do that is the for-profit company creates a conservation levy of sorts. So like this bed night. So each person staying a night is paying a conservation tax, if you will, to participate in the reserve activities that's built into their cost. And that budget gets donated to the foundation side. And the foundation side runs all the exterior programs that benefit from community, vocational trainings, conservation activities, wildlife on the reserve that are outside of the reserve's, quote, needs to manage or uh, their boundaries within the fence line. So you get these really cool combinations uh, to which that's where like organizations like Global Conservation Force will partner with a reserve and the foundation at a location because there's more than one things going on. And there's actually two or three different hat wearers who may be in charge of different faculties and operations within a reserve space. So um, Lindy, I know you have You've got a little saying, and I actually really enjoy it, your um, economies of scale for conservation when you are running a private 
facility uh, like Kurika. So for it to survive, you have, I believe it's a three-word phrase uh, that you, you've, you've uh, mentioned a few times. Uh, a three-word phrase, conservation is a team sport or commerce, conservation and community. <laughs> That's the one. Because, I mean, you got the, you, as I say, as you've got the, the conservation is a teamwork space for sure, but your, your, your economy of scale uh, detail of how this is really, that, that, that phrase is really important because I think so many people assume conservation just happens magically with a snap yeah. of your fingers or people just quote care so much something has to be done whereas those of us that work on the reality of the budgets the fundraising and the physical application know it's a grinding job to maintain funding and budgets so when you are looking at two sides of the hat like yourself there you know keeping the lodge and the and the reserve alive while also keeping the foundation alive that um reciprocal motion and input from the ecotourism truly benefiting the eco conservation activities, the two in one rate is built into guest attendance. So guest attendance has to be healthy because there is no other true lifeline outside of, of like nonprofits like Global Conservation Force and other partners you guys have in the space that take on certain slices of the pie. Um, 100% Mike I mean you've you've summed it all up there I mean privately owned game reserves in South Africa do not get any support from government not one cent in order to um, rewild protect manage look after um, the wild spaces under our custodianship so that relationship between commerce conservation and community is critical because without a robust commercial arm that creates ongoing stream of revenue for conservation and for community, none of it can actually happen. None of it. Exactly. And, and we learned that we learned that in COVID. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the journey of Karika Game Reserve and the Karika Foundation was really interesting through that COVID period. And I mean, you and I have a global conservation force and the Karika Foundation. We, we, we walked that hand in hand. Um, <laughs> and, and I think it really solidified our partnership. And prior to COVID, we were 100% funded through the conservation and community levy at Karika Game Reserve. COVID hit and overnight, the Karika Foundation funding was switched off. But more than that, the Karika Game Reserve funding was switched off. Completely, yeah. 100%. The tap of running water was closed overnight. And that, that was a really scary place to be because you've got, you've got three core groups of people that are all looking at you and to you for answers and for questions and for their survival. One is staff. The other are wild animals. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and the third one are your communities um, on your borders that have got – used to the the relationship um, of of care that is between you and them, which all stems from this commercial entity. So what was really interesting in that context is that that the hat the, the hat changed ownership. It went from the revenue stream went from Karika Game Reserve onto the Karika Foundation Trust Head. And all of a sudden I found myself reaching out to the likes of people like yourselves 
who we had worked with in some capacity in the past to say, guys, we need to get creative here. We need to start generating our own income. And what we did was really incredible. Uh, we we had some extraordinary fundraising initiatives, thanks to all your all your donors and audience that, that are listening. So I'm sure they were part of some of those and, and supported you and supported us. But post-COVID, what's happened is if I look at like the income that comes into Karika Foundation Trust now, I would say 60% of our income comes through the reserve and 40% comes through the partnerships that were created and nurtured um, through COVID. You guys being one of them. And and that's really interesting to know because through you and us, we realize that there is a huge audience of conservationists out there that actually do want to get involved. Big time. And, and we gave them the opportunity. And, and I suppose that the COVID also showed them how meaningful and important they are because ecotourism comes and goes. We have good seasons and we have bad seasons. And we, we are, ecotourism is vulnerable. The first, um, you know, the, the first shockwaves of anything globally, people stop traveling. Whether it's a stock market crisis, whether it's a world war, whether it's a pandemic, the first thing you do is you say, okay, I'll, I won't travel this year, I'll travel next year or the year after. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that means that from a, a wildlife protection, a wildlife management, the care and upliftment of communities, that income has to, see, has to keep coming in. So while the commercial entity is critical, it can only keep you going through the good times. And then when the hiccups come, we start relying heavily on each other in terms of our global partnerships with other conservation like-minded organizations. Um, yeah, and that's something that COVID woke me up to and something I'm, I'm really grateful for and, and realize how important it is to nurture those relationships. It is pretty crazy because, you know, um, I know, so one of the reasons I thought it would be so cool to I mean, of course, we would love to have you on the podcast no matter what. But over the last two years, we've had a lot of, um, I guess, what would be like war room fundraiser talks. Like things are bad. We need to, (laughs) we really have to figure out how to keep these things alive or we're going to lose what's the culminative of decades of work because, you know, there are programs that are in existence because your dad made those sacrifices. He pushed them through. The reserve got to its size. The lodges are in place. And there's this staff that now works with the community and then vice versa, things like us, where we've been working with you guys for around eight, nine years now. I think the first time we came through was 2015 uh, doing a gear supply. Um, But, you know, same thing for us. We have this established long run partnership and we have really strong efforts. And now we see Karika as our Southern Africa home base, whereas before we were up in Hoodsprite and we were there for, uh, the better part of seven years. And that kind of shifted with COVID actually, um, interestingly enough. But the what happens is you start to realize like th- there is no help coming and it becomes this war room chat. And one of the things that in that, that first uh, kind of threshold is, is keeping the staff that keeps the things immediately alive, which becomes really difficult uh, during that kind of fundraising timeline. But then afterwards which is kind of the fun of where we have all taken the next step is reigniting 
the bigger game plan again because we're not going to let that uh, essentially rough speed bump slow us down for too long. Um, as soon as we catch the wind in our wings ag- again, we're you know back onto like, for example, the habitat uh, expansion and biodiversity land purchases and whatnot. Um, but Lindy, in the space of the lodge, so that everybody can understand. Um, so if we if you have folks in the United States, the um, I like to kind of refer to private game reserves as mini cities. They've got departments and they're kind of an island of their own operations. And there may not be a lot around them for miles. And sometimes there are communities right up against them. And sometimes there's stuff next to them. But what's really important is uh, they become these destinations, you know, these little islands of destinations, these little cities that become a major employment center for many folks. And without them there, there is no filler for that employment. Um, Lindy, how many folks do you think work between all the lodges and the operations from game drive to cook staff to cleaning um, at Carica itself, the reserve? Yeah, I think now we back up to between the Carica Game Reserve and all the lodges and the Carica Foundation, I think we probably round about 320, 330 staff members again. See, that's incredible. That that's And those folks are all breadwinners primarily for their family um, because their, their family may not necessarily have employment or they may, but those employment options might even stem outside of Carica coming towards Carica. So like things like vehicle transit companies, gas stations, restaurants outside the reserve, uh, lodging and accommodation, tour activities outside the reserves where the um, external waves of tourism start to shockwave out that this massive network of interconnectivity between the other reserves, the other point of destinations and the other activities become this uh, this commerce habitat, if you will, uh, for ecotourism. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I don't know the exact stats, Mike, but I think if you look at the employment stats per sector in the Eastern Cape uh, as a province, uh, tourism is, is a major sector that, that creates employment. And a lot of that has come through the establishment of all of these private reserves in the last 35 years um, in the Eastern Cape, starting back in 1989. And, and that alone really inspires me in that as 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 recently as 35 years ago the whole of the eastern cape was farmlands outside of two national parks today there's more than 80,000 hectares that has been rewilded and is under private ownership um and 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 ecotourism management that has been brought back and that's only going to grow i mean i i always love looking forward into the next 30 years Mm-hmm. And thinking, goodness, where when I'm old and, and at the end of my career, what is the picture going to look like? Because these wildlife channels, this connected conservation, um, the, the growing of these herds of species, it's all going to happen. If you look at what's happened over the last 35 years, you know, the trajectory just keeps going forward. And and that to me is incredibly exciting. It really is. It's it, it shows what we can do, especially when we're working together and we can get a couple of us at least, you know, not everybody's ready to make these big changes yet, but there's a, there's a good group of us that are looking and pushing forward. Um, so Lindy, let's talk a little bit about why 
just on the face value, it's not advantageous for a private game reserve to just make themselves massively giant. Um, you know, this is another thing we've talked about. You know, yeah. things like the habitat expansion are actually quite stressful for a reserve itself. Um, whereas that's where the footings of like the foundations and global conservation force come in to take over different faculties. Um, yeah. So the best way to answer that question to give it context is if you if you take your mind to an area in South Africa like the Sabi Sands, where you have some very famous game reserves, the likes of Londolozi and Sangita and Mala Mala and Sabi Sabi and all of those reserves. Generally, you've got lodges and the land mass that the lodge is on, even though it's one big connected conservancy, the actual land ownership of any one of those lodges, and so the area that they typically traverse with their guests, is probably between 3,000 to 5,000 hectares. That's mm -hmm. all. So we are 11,500 hectares to put into context. So when you're running an ecotourism business with the objective to giving guests a wonderful lodge, luxurious experience combined with exceptional game viewing, you do not need more than three to 5,000 hectares in order to do that. Remembering that every hectare you grow beyond that carries a conservation cost in terms of roads, in terms of fencing, in terms of wildlife management, in terms of um, habitat expansion, in terms of everything. So that, that gives you an idea. So when you look at Kareka Game Reserve as, as 11,500 hectares, at the moment, we don't need to be 11,500 hectares, but what's driving the habitat expansion is our commitment to conservation, um, our love of wild animals, and the fact that because we, together with our partners like Dover Conservation Force, have been doing our conservation job well, you have growing herds of animals. And those herds of animals need more habitat um, in order for them to survive, in order for them to keep growing. The preservation of the species, if you protect them, successfully requires that you keep growing so that's why any growth beyond where we are now and even this latest habitat expansion doesn't benefit ecotourism at all in fact it's a, de a deterrent um, it's a negative to the commercial success of the reserve because it increases your cost ratio without necessarily bringing in any additional income because it's not adding anything additional to the overall commercial product and we certainly are not really in the game to want to build any more lodges. Um, we feel we've got enough bed nights to manage. So any growth and expansion from here is driven purely by our, our conservation commitment um, and, and, and our willingness to, 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 to be as meaningful in the conservation space as we are in the guest experience space. Big time. Yeah. So that was perfectly explained this. And, you know, I think, <laughs> again, you know, we get folks, um, they're honest questions and they're, they're well-intended, but they're like, oh, well, why doesn't somebody just do this and this? And you're like, you know, it's like uh, you're essentially building a budget for next year already in the same action. So, you know, we would all love to get, uh, for example, let's say the million uh, hectare mark between these different reserves, but there is a puzzle piece of, who manages what and costs in between 
And yes, this year might be good for fundraising, but can we sustain it next year? So you yeah. have these little things in between so that you have to have these catches because you can build a giant functioning, living, amazing program and project, but it could evaporate the next year because people tune in once for a push and then they're like, okay, well, I did my thing. And they go back to the regular life. Meanwhile, the rest of us working in conservation are like, we have this massive overhead to sustain now. Um, and that can be in something like uh, vocational programs, that could be in staff, that could be in wildlife management costs, that could be in a million and one things. So this complexity of actually rewilding and making reserves bigger and connecting reserves is extremely complex because in theory, it's easy. You drop fence lines and you connect fence lines and properties and you let animals go. But in the application, it's extremely complex because there are hundreds of people involved that need to be uh, kept sustained in their occupations and the wildlife needs to be properly managed and integrated and there's costs and there's real life factors where we can't just be like, boom, it's done. We've made this thing. Um, and so this is a unique space again, because this kind of comes back to uh, the Save the Horns platform program that, you know, habitat expansion, defragmenting the spaces within Curica to then help the Eastern Cape, you know, dream of the connected goal between Dr. Folds, Amakala, ARC, the Indalo Reserves, Global Conservation Forest, Karika Foundation, and Karika Game Reserve. And then now the new puzzle piece being Tanglewood and um, CLI in the middle there, managing that and this giant bridge of all these little connectivities. <laughs> you know, yeah. it becomes extremely complex, but in theory, it's like, cool, we just need to buy land and connect these things. But the real application starts to come in is like, who starts to pick up what weight of the puzzle as well, not just put the yeah. puzzle piece in who holds that weight because um, we, we are not getting these giant external reoccurring fundings. This is, this is primarily all private donor funding, if you will. You know, it's not like the U S government saying, Hey, global conservation forest, here's a million dollars to manage biodiverse habitat every year. That's just not happening. Um, <laughs> in the South yeah. African government's not doing the same to Karika Foundation. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a very interesting space, you know. And 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 Will and I talk about this often because, as you know, I'm I'm also on the CLI board with Will, and and we're very aware of the fact that we we are going to be needing to take the next few steps um, as a as a group of partners in order to, to prove the bigger concept before a, a global solution comes in. But but what's really interesting to me is, is the mindset shift that needs to take place. So if you backtrack again 33 years to the likes of Colin Rushmere and Adrian Gardner um, and, and other folks who started ecotourism in the Eastern Cape, it started through it started with businessmen and it started with ownership. And the only way that you were going to bring conservation back was through the commercial um, entrepreneur spirit, which was buy farms, create businesses, get reinvest profits back into buying more farms, knit the farms together, build new lodges, and keep growing, growing, growing through that, that ownership model. Then you get to a point where um, the ownership is is from a commercial perspective, is, is self-sustaining 
and the commercial product is is doing well, bar there no pandemics and things like that. But like I said earlier, um, your animals and your herd start growing, and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden your motivation becomes something else, and and that takes you then into the space of collaborative conservation. So the mind shift that's needing to happen in the Eastern Cape and the the global questions that we're needing to answer in order to open up these wildlife corridors and and create some connected wildlife um, spaces is is how do you transition from ownership to collaborative, collective conservation? And, And that's really thinking with a very, very different part of your brain. And the solutions that you're looking for are very different solutions to commercial solutions that have got us to where we are right now in the Eastern Cape. And they're really, I mean, I'm very optimistic that we'll probably get there sooner than we think, because I I know the personalities involved and I know we've got some incredible brains. Um, But more than that, people who really, really love conservation, wild animals, and the Eastern Cape as a whole. So although it still feels hard and, and it's we're still very much in that pioneering phase where you're needing the front runners, which are probably the likes of Will and I and and Karika and Amakala um, and Lalibela and then moving into the rest of the Ndalo reserves, um, at a point it's going to gain traction and then the global solutions are going to come and then it's going to go really quickly. Big time. Yeah, there's there's a... That proof of concept, some folks aren't, uh, they, they don't see, they're, they're not, I don't want to say like, they're not future seers, but they don't, they can't see something until it's physical. So sometimes you'll have major skepticism, especially in uh, hard markets for either economics or livelihood. They don't want to put that foot forward for the, the assumed risk. Whereas, like you said, it going from ownership to this collective collaboration or stewardship space of land and biodiversity, which then supports in reverse the e-commerce of ecotourism and all the other activities. you (laughs) It's a scary space because you might've only just gotten comfortable as a game reserve and as a lodge operation and your staff, and you're burdened heavily by things like staff training, staff retention, guest experiences, guests coming back after COVID, and then you have a bunch of us who are kind of cr- the crazy wahoos going, hey, let's make these places bigger and let's introduce more species. And they're like, hold on, we just are coming back to this like stable plane. We're not quite there yet. Or uh, I don't know if I want to be a part of that. Whereas that once you have that proof of concept, and you say, hey, look how this is working. And they're like, OK, I can kind of see this. I get it. I understand now. And it's not as scary anymore. Um, and then you also have... Uh, you know, on occasion, some folks, they don't think they want to be a part of it because they have a different perception of what the actual idea is. And this is the major application of humans and conservation. Um, again, it's super easy in theory to just take wild animals and introduce them somewhere. But there has to be, unfortunately, at this time, age of human history, that uh, that land has to be owned. It has to be protected. It has to be managed externally and internally. And you can't just plop an animal somewhere and expect them to thrive, even if it's the right habitat. So you yeah, have to then tie back to people. And and added to that, which which none of us factored in, certainly not Dad, way back in the beginning, is the cost of wildlife protection. 
expensive. We were going into ecotourism and we ended up being, um, you know, being uh, protectors of endangered species that were being, you know, um, at risk every day of poaching. And, and you've already spoken about the Tundi story um, with, with Will, but, you know, between 2009 and 2012, when we were at probably the, the peak of our growth phase in terms of, of land acquisitions and building of lodges, um, you know, we, we lost, uh, we, were, we were hit numerous times between 2009 and 2012 by poachers and, and I think lost around nine rhino. Um, and remember in those days, a rhino cost an enormous amount of money. Mm-hmm. You know, you were buying a rhino for hundreds of thousands of rand um, back then. And now people don't want to buy a rhino because it costs them so much to protect them. So you, you get catapulted into wildlife protection, which, you know, you know nothing about. And all of a sudden you, you're having to, um, you know, employ canine units, build mounted units, have military strategies and um, how you're going to protect these animals. You know, and that, that was a crazy space to navigate um, back then. And I mean, you know, that's where people like you guys, Global Conservation Force, coming forward to partner and and help us navigate that space. You know, we would never be where we are as a province. And in terms of an Indalo group, and I I think we actually, um, I think we're we're quite pioneering as a collective in our approach to rhino conservation. And we're doing really well as a province. Um, touch so. wood, touch wood. Um, but you know, th- that was through partnerships and, and, and most importantly, the point I'm trying to make is it costs an exorbitant amount of money to keep that all going. And people, yeah. people forget about that. Yep. Um, so while you've been growing ecotourism businesses to fund conservation, your conservation costs have grown exponentially and unpredictably because of the threat of poaching um, and the fact that you're now custodians for an endangered species. Yeah. And so let's, let's, we'll dive that space really quick. Cause you know, this is actually something we touched, we've touched on multiple times at different points in the podcast. We've had some of our senior advanced instructors who uh, either are quote visible or not, or invisible, some of which uh, work on different special operations or special forces in the past, and we can't show their faces, but there are some of our elite APU instructors who work embedded with teams. Um, So we've touched on some of these aspects, but let's talk at like a core level. So when all of this started with the real increase in poaching, all of a sudden we're going from simple poaching to organize crime cartel syndicate style so let's just say you know for all the folks listening that live in a city all of a sudden you're dealing with petty theft in your backyard and your community and then the next night the italian mob has taken over that entire section of your city and you can't even own your local store without getting in the way of what they're doing and that's kind of like what's happening here with rhinos all of a sudden You've got an ecotourism operation in the lodge. And before you know it, you've got very serious criminals breaking into the reserves and taking rhinos or or their horns, I mean. And now you've got to defend yourself against that space and that you're catching up. And that's obviously where we are 
uh, source experts in conservation for building and creating anti-poaching units, operations, counter-wildlife trafficking, everything in the mix, but it's expensive. And this is where the assumption, again, on the outside goes, we'll just hire more rangers or just get a helicopter or why don't you guys just buy more vehicles? It's like, okay, so let's just start at a core base level. On average, what most reserves will have is one ranger or two rangers per 3,000 acres or um, 1,500 hectares. That average, let's just say a reserve is going to have between 8 and 12 rangers on shift plus a manager plus the vehicles, the equipment, the living space, radios. And before you know it, that is a $250,000 cost just right there, like boom. And now you've got to maintain that. And then you've got fence line issues. And now you've got to incorporate advanced technology. And all of a sudden, we're looking at something that could be competitive with a police budget for a giant city because you have to combat organized crime on your one reserve. And that's just one reserve in the space of an area where there might be 20 to 30 with Rhino. And so the Eastern Cape has been fantastic because we started working back with uh, Amakala, Shamwari, um, Kriha, and many, many others in the space there um, as early as 2015. And we started doing ranger training platforms and gear supply and standardizing and finding the groups that melded well so we could create joint operations, communications and trainings and all these other things. So now you flash forward and we, we survived COVID and uh, there's a really good collaboration between the reserve space and the uh, ranger space in the Eastern Cape. And but this 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 threat is still in the presence. It doesn't go away. Um, and so you have to sustain these costs. And that's on top of everything else we were just talking about. And um, so I think it's important to hit these conversation points because conservation comes with a giant burden of financial cost to make it work. And that doesn't mean you have to be expensive. You don't you don't just be expensive to be expensive. There's just functional things you have to sustain and maintain to be uh, proper in your wildlife protection space. Um, and so that's like, you know, coming full circle, uh, our community selection ranger training. Um, the, the There's a big advantage to having the closest community to the reserve benefit from wildlife conservation so that in a th- in one of the theories of application, not the only one, th- that they are part of the conservation efforts versus the criminal efforts when it comes time to split hairs if they start to try to pull recruits, if you will, from community spaces. Um, and it's a crazy, advanced, complex thing to have to think about. At the end of the day, you're just trying to protect a beautiful nature reserve. Um, and we've talked about that in many applications. But... Uh, yeah, so so I mean, just to expand on that, um, Mike, and you and I talk about this often, are those three pillars uh, that Karika Game Reserve and the Karika Foundation rests on in terms of our holistic conservation mandate um, to protect this 11,500 hectare 
wilderness that we're custodians of and all the wild animals in it. The first arm, which we've spoken about a little bit, is protection, which involves your your actual protective action, your canine unit, your mounted unit, your foot patrol unit. Um, protection also expands to creating jobs, which we've discussed, which we, we employ 320-odd people who probably um, each look after two or three families, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, protection is addressing food scarcity. Uh, so part of our mandate is to support the, the community kitchens. Uh, we've also got a very active program teaching permaculture to the youth um, and also the um, adults who want to learn to bring back the, the, the um, you know, the informed art of sustainable food growing. And and uh, and then you've also touched on enterprise development and, and supporting local enterprise. So that all falls under protection. And as we've mentioned, if you're protecting your animals well and you're succeeding, those herds of animals grow. And then in order to preserve them, you need to expand your habitat. Um, And expanding habitat is expensive in terms of new habitat acquisition. So as you know, our latest habitat expansion project, um, the land was donated by a philanthropic family in the UK and um, included into the protected area. And all of those costs of incorporating that land, putting up new fences, dropping internal fences, um, all of that, we've raised the money collectively and Save the Horns has been critical in raising funds for phase two of that habitat expansion. But all of those funds have been raised through the the Karika Foundation and they probably equate to about two or three million rand to bring that land into the reserve um, and fully incorporate it with all the translocations of animals and reintroduction of animals, et cetera, et cetera, that fall part of that habitat expansion. So that, that's all under preservation. And that picture has to keep moving forward into the wildlife corridors and connected wildlife between us and the other Indala reserves in the Eastern Cape over time. But all of that is meaningless unless you move to the third pillar, which is creates the sustainability of the whole model and that is community education and authentic rejuvenation and upliftment. So your communities have to be so integrated with what you are doing and your common cause that when poachers come into the area, they have to live somewhere. And, and your communities aren't going to let them live in, in that community because they're your, they're your conservation partners. Um, and they, they, they feel the benefits of the conservation area, but also they feel the connection to it, which is equally important, and that connection to nature. So, I mean, as you know, the Karika Foundation is is very active in that community space. Um, And probably the two most active projects are our youth development project or program, which has 350 youth between the ages of 11 and and 18 that are all registered in the program. and, And the core Um, foundation of that program is actually social and emotional learning, which is the the development of self and the development of your emotional competencies. Because all decision-making that ends in tears generally comes from emotional overwhelm, comes from that place of despair, that place of anger, that place of frustration. And when you start working with young people and start growing their self-awareness into their reactive patterns, into poor decision-making that comes from an an over-emotional place, teach them the skills of self-regulation, teach them the value of setting goals, of making decisions aligned with values and aligned with goals. You teach people who even come from poverty that they have 
power over their lives and they can create something meaningful through good decision-making. And the opportunity is that something like the ecotourism spaces that have been created in the Eastern Cape presents to them. And so, as you know, we've got this um, youth development space of social-emotional learning, very active sports program, very active environmental education program, moving into maths and science and robotics, um, tutoring that all feeds into an internship program that creates jobs within wildlife protection, within ecotourism, and now moving into other sectors that aren't even connected to ecotourism or wildlife, like maths and science and IT and and computers. And so, you know, we've been working in that space, as you know now, for five or six years. And the quality of youth that we are getting out and are able to start pulling into our internship programs is just incredible. Whereas the reserves around us that are not doing these youth development programs in that authentic way are still struggling with finding good candidates to employ into either guiding or ecotourism or wildlife protection. So, you know, I'm a huge advocate and I'm incredibly passionate about this community space because for me, it's the sustainable arm of everything that you're doing. Without it, you are always going to be at risk. Big time. And I could speak to that on, on more than one level. Um, you know, primarily when you get what, what kind of mentality you get from a community selected member when they're coming into a training space, um, do they look at it just as a time holding kind of opportunity or do they start to look at this as a life and career path? Those two forks, seems super simple, but it really does impact you when you're putting so much time, effort, and funding into training people so that they can stay and be successful because you're hoping that that person or those persons become um, literal placeholders. They stay there. They're not, they're not just there for a quick stay and go. They, they look to be a part of that system and they want to maintain a career path to which then you can build on top of their skill sets and extend it and you, you complement everything on top versus this very exhausting cycle of someone comes in for three weeks to three months, walks away and you have to backfill them every single time. And um, that is a, a symptom of, um, uh, you know, improper... Uh, mentorship or sometimes community relations in some areas of industry. Um, so we see it because uh, we're seeing it in our training programs where the youth that were young teenagers are now young adults and they're coming into our training programs. Their broad exposure and intelligence and planning to what they want to become or what they see they can build from in that is massive. And it's not just like a throwaway, oh, I'm just doing this because uh, mentality now. And, and and there is a big, big play there. That's like, it's a huge uh, foundational block for us. Yeah. And, and, and it's a huge shift. I mean, it's, it's what's really rewarding about our relationship is that we've seen this progression over time. I mean, we've lived through exactly what you described of really struggling with retention, of having the wrong candidates of, you know, feeling very disillusioned with um, the exhausting process of, of management of the wrong candidates. And, and, 
you know, almost feeling like what you're doing is counterproductive because you're trying to protect wildlife, but then you think, well, gee, you know, sometimes it goes horribly wrong with employment and you think, well, maybe I've actually put them more at risk because, you know, we all know that disgruntled employees and things like that can, can you know, can create, can be a, a threat or, or, or a source of, of vulnerability. So it brings us back again to this rich investment on a global scale into communities with the youth. Um, so you've got that, you've got that balance of there are more really, really good kids in a community that you've events that you've invested in as opposed to dysfunctional youth. Because I would say most communities in South Africa, the really, really good kids are hiding at home and the dysfunctional youth are, are ruling the streets. And, and I, I truly believe in our communities, we are starting to flip that around through the, through the youth development program and through social and emotional learning and engaging in these really positive, healthy um, activities like sports and environmental education um, and, and, and all of those things. You know, and once you've got traction, so many more opportunities come into a community, like, for instance, the opportunity we've got now for early next year and upgrading one of the libraries with 16 computers will employ a project leader um, into that space who will run maths and science and robotics tutoring, adult literacy. You know, that all comes from a functioning nonprofit trust that is sustainable with good international partnerships in terms of, of donors and a sustainable source of income from a commercial entity. Um, and, you know, that, that has been around for a while with a good track record. And then other donors want to come and work with you because you've got solid structures. Um, and they know that their investment is going to succeed because it's going to be supported with these structures, as opposed to which happens so often in South Africa. You go into a community, you put in an investment, and two years later you go back and the whole thing's fallen apart, it's broken, it's in rack and ruin because you haven't had those support structures on the ground. Yeah, and there's a there's generally a lack of uh, mentorship that stays in there too. It's a, kind of like a one-off throw you know, I kind of, I call, I kind of joke about them sometimes. They're like lunch parties. Like you throw a one-off lunch party and expect massive changes, and then you just walk away. Which obviously, we our organizations do not do that. But um, you know, it's the difference between that or becoming a mentor and a partner with the community where you help develop and encourage and sustain, so that when they hit those moments of friction or frustration, they have someone to be with, and then you also you build from within the community with those pillars of support. So it's not external and then they have their own empowerment programs and then they become again, partners instead of just um, participants in the programs. And then you find so many things to develop out of there. Um, Completely. And if you remember back to 2017, that's exactly how we established the Karika foundation and our relationship with our communities. Um, Absolutely. We spent a year listening. We ran, um, we facilitated community SWOT analysis with all the leadership there from schools to political leaders to traditional family leaders. Um, they came up with, with their weaknesses, with their, with their strengths, with what their threats were and with the solutions that they wanted to, um, that they thought could work within their communities. And, and then we stepped forward and said, well, well, that's great. So the way that we can work is in all of these areas where you see there's a solution, you offer your resources first in terms of 
um, ideas, energy, leadership, um, creating functional systems. And, and then the reasons that, that these efforts have traditionally failed, that's where the Karika Foundation can come in and start to plug in those holes and those gaps. And traditionally, and almost in all circumstances, though what makes a project fail is that people can't volunteer forever. They need to be paid. Mm -hmm. So we came in and created jobs for the people who had been volunteering. And then secondly, you've got to upskill those people to do what they've been doing as a volunteer even better. So that is training, um, capacitation, um, upskilling of individuals. And then within every project, there are um, consumable resources um, or infrastructures that need to be put in place that often the community doesn't have the financial means to um, achieve. And so that's another place that you would come in as a once-off and be able to find a donor to put in the infrastructure or annually bring in the sorts of consumables like soccer balls or rugby balls or netball hoops or whatever it might be to keep a project running. But, but essentially, the lifeblood of the project, the people, the inspiration, the energy, the motivation lives within the community and it never leaves. So when you do go through difficult times, the community sustains the program. And when their successes, the, com the successes are felt most authentically by the community themselves. And that in itself, that sense of pride, that sense of accomplishment is what keeps driving that community rejuvenation forward in that it's, as you mentioned, from the inside out and it is, is essentially owned yeah. and motivated by the community. Let's go back really quick. I think this is really important. Um, a lot of folks don't understand um, when, when I get questions in presentations, um, like what does it mean to actually speak with the community and what does it mean to actually listen to the community? I think um, we, as uh, for those working in this space, can oversimplify it sometimes. <laughs> Whereas it's like, uh, explain that process when Karika Foundation actually went in and started speaking with the elders and um, break down what the SWOT analysis is and and that kind of that that moment because this is another fail in old conservation aspects, not what Cricket Foundations is doing, the opposite, um, where as the assumed need coming from the outside comes into a space, whether that's community or wildlife protection or wildlife management, and those in the space full-time, whether that's community, wildlife protection, or wildlife management, is saying something they need, but they're not listened to. So you ultimately have a train crash wreck or failure or no launch. So this process of actually going somewhere, whether it's any of those three pillars again, and listening to what's going on so that you yeah. can come together with those skill sets and create a solution and then sustain that solution. Um, yeah. Well, Mark, it's not... I mean, it's not rocket science. It's 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 exactly it's it's more of a of an intention, of a mindset. Um, so when I when I was given the 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 challenge to come in and breathe life into the Karika Foundation, largely due to the fact that the commercial um, product Karika Game Reserve was at a point, a pause point, of commercial stability, and we had the confidence to say as of January 
2018, we are going to put on the conservation and community levy onto our rates for the first time. So we had enough confidence in our in our guests and our product that increasing the cost per night per person wasn't going to be a deterrent um, to our occupancies and to the commercial success. So I started my work in 2017, knowing that my first budgets were going to materialize in 2018. And more than anything, in my heart, there was a, a real intention to understand the people that I was going to be serving, our beneficiaries. And our, and our beneficiaries that we defined were our staff and the three communities that were basically just on the other side of our of our boundary fences, which were Ekapumleni, Marcel, and Clipfontaine. And I hadn't really, remember, I had a life in Cape Town up until that point. I was still living in Cape Town. So I hadn't actually had any contact um, or in-depth conversations with the people that I was now coming in to serve. So it was a really heartfelt intention of mine to go in and to listen. So I, I really just took the time to go to all of our lodges and and facilitate staff meetings across the board with, with, our, um, with our field guides, with our kitchen staff, with our cleaning staff, with our um, hospitality staff, and just pose the question, um, you know, with this opportunity of, of reinvesting uh, funds into community and the places where you live, what do you guys want to see happen? What are the changes you want to see? What are the things that you're struggling with? What are um, the improvements that would make your lives easier? Um, what is most meaningful to you? What small investment, if it's only a small investment, what can make the biggest difference to your lives on a daily basis? So that, that was the process of listening to our staff first. And then when it came to the communities, I first had to find one or two people who could then help me find the leadership I was looking for. Um, and that was very much a process of, um, of kind of scratching at the surface and talking to people and saying, who are the people in the community who are already doing this sort of work who I might be able to talk to? And, and that's when I came across Nomawetu and Gangu, who you know Nomawetu. She's still my right-hand woman in, in terms of my community manager. She's so awesome. Um, she, she's so incredible. And she was actually working in the Kenton Tourism Office at the time and hating it, actually. <laughs> she was really hating it. Oh, and I no. still remember walking in the first time just unannounced and kind of saying, hi, Norma, I'm Lindy. I come to introduce myself and, um, you know, can you have a cup of coffee with me? And then just chatting to her about what I was, you know, the, the, the kind of path I was needing to walk and my uncertainty in walking it. And my, 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 it was really a, a plea for help to say, I need to find the decision makers across these three communities and get them all into one room and start building relationships with them and start gaining their trust because if we haven't got a relationship and I haven't got their trust there's nothing that we can do together and Norma where to was you know I managed to hit gold with Norma and and with her was able to then pull this this SWOT analysis meeting together which really brought three different communities into one space um, and the community leadership, you know, so we approached the school principals, we approached the municipality councillors, 
and we approached the traditional family leaders within each of those com communities and we brought them into one space. And then we really did conduct that um, traditional SWOT analysis. We, we facilitated the conversations between them as to what their strengths were, what their weaknesses were, what, their, um, what the threats were, um, and, and what the, I can't remember which one I've left out, but you, you get the drift. And then each, <laughs> each community had the opportunity <clears throat> to present their findings. <clears throat> and we stood at the, at the top of the hall with literally those little sticky notes, those yellow stick, stick on notes and started creating this mind map on the wall. And the communities could start to see us overlap their strengths, their weaknesses, their threats, over each other and we started to create these these themes like youth infrastructure early childhood development employment enterprise development and support and at the end of that meeting we kind of said okay well we can't start with all of this next year so what do you feel is most important where are we going to start and then at, at the end of that meeting was when I suggested to them the way in which we could work that, that projects would be all community-inspired and community-managed, and the Karika Foundation would come in and we would fill in the gaps. And, and that's literally how we started. That's awesome. So that is like a really good example of like the purest and, and, and most honest road you can take. And that's a, that's a really good platform to share for folks listening that um, commonly when you're, when you're overlapping with a community space, you, you, the, if this effort alone right here can really change success for everyone, because then there's not assumed needs and assumed moves, which can lead to friction and all these other things. And this conversation is open and you share commonality and you share those goals. Um, yeah. I'm going to pass the mic to Robert. Uh, Robert, you've been quiet there, I, but I'm assuming you're probably getting notes and doing all sorts of stuff in the background, ready to launch a bunch of questions. <laughs> yeah, I've been, uh, I've been doodling and, and, or not doodling, but I've been writing down questions. Y'all have answered most of them, but I'm, I'm always just really fascinated with that. The, the, like you said, the three pillars that, you know, the, the aspect of community with the, you know, the people around your reserve. And it always blows my mind. And, and maybe this is more of like an American mindset, but like, my first time in Africa, I, you were like, we were in the Eastern Cape and it was like, oh, this reserve, that reserve, that reserve. And I was like, man, that's a, that's a lot of reserves to be competing with each other, but it's, it's so not the case um, out there. It's, it's more of this harmonious like relationship. And I just, it's all, it always is really, really cool to hear um, how involved and invested, you know, Cariega is and, and, and the community is with, uh, with everything in the area. And it's just, it's just really cool. Um but it seems like you've already answered a lot of the questions, but I guess, Lindy, what would just be the, the, one of the uh, like biggest challenges with running a, a game reserve or running Carriaga? It's, it seems to be like people or, or the community and, and aspects like that. But is there ever like an instance with the animals where you're like, Oh, dang, these water bucks just don't get along with these, you know, kudu. Robert, I promise you they should do a reality show on the, on the back end of an ecotourism business and conservation. Yeah. Um, you know, what are the challenges on a daily basis? Well, first of all, you guys will understand just through the businesses you involved in yourselves that, that your human resource, you know, when you employ 320 people, mm -hmm. not all of them are happy all the time, despite your best, your best intentions. So 
I mean, our staff are very important to us and human resources and management of staff um, so that staff are happy and fulfilled and looked after takes a huge amount of time. I would say our general manager spends 90% of her time on human resources. Our estate manager, ecologist, wildlife manager, jeepers. Okay, so you've got five lodges. They each um, have water issues on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we get all of our water out of boreholes. Um, that all comes or otherwise springs on the reserve. There are many, many pumps that have to pump water from where it is to get it up to tanks in order to get into all the lodges. And you've got 180 people who, you know, want hot water and want a great guest experience. So just keeping water in water tanks and water coming out of showers is a, is a daily exercise. And you're always putting out fires and unexpected pumps burning out or all of a sudden, you know, one water tank is down to 30% and someone's rushing around to try and see what the problem is and, and getting water in that tank. We've got 12,000 kilometers of roads on Kareka Game Reserve. All of those roads need to be graded. We've got very slippery mud, so they all have to have what we call crash uh, put on top of them annually so that our cruisers don't slip around and don't, um, um, you know, don't slip and slide on roads and that they're safe. So you've got um, vehicles out all the time maintaining roads. You've got fences that degrade. You've got lions that sometimes get out of gates and you've got to herd them back into the reserve. You've got an elephant that's figured out how to get his tusks right under the fence and lift it over his head so he can get out of the reserve and you've got to get him back into the reserve. Um, You've got, you've got hippo that sometimes get out of the reserve and you've got to get them back into the reserve. So, you know, it's, it's actually just almost like a comedy of errors on a weekly basis. You know, you go into a week saying, okay, our job this week is we want to try and accomplish X, Y, and Z. And you end up doing A, B, and C just to um, maintain the equilibrium and continue to keep everything running in orderly fashion. Um, as, as Mike will know also, when you've got fences up, your management of wildlife um, gets very, very complex because you've got to um, manage gene pools um, and preserve genetic integrity. So you've got to know at all times um, what animals you've got, what sex they are, who's mated with who, what the offspring is, because at some point you're going to have to swap the bull out and bring a new bull in so that you don't have um, males mating with their daughters um, and degrading the gene pool and the genetics. Uh, You've got to administer um, elephant contraception. Because, you know, elephant herds grow quickly and elephants need a huge amount of space in order to thrive. So we started with 11 elephants in around, I think, 2004, 2005. We now have, you know, that herd has grown to about 60 strong. Um, they're running out of, out of room. With our new habitat expansion, we're going to solve that problem for a while. But I think every private game reserve with a fence in South Africa has to administer elephant contraception. Just think for a minute how complicated that is. You you can't disrupt the social structure of the herd. So you've got to identify your 11 females across the age group that you are going to give the contraception to so that you don't stop breeding, but you slow it down. You've then, you know, the contraception is administered from the air by a helicopter, um, by Wolfolds hanging out of the helicopter with a dart gun. So you've got to be able to identify those 11 females from the air by some definitive marking on their ear or on their back or on their tail, you know, and and that happens on an ongoing basis every three or four months. 
we're dehorning rhino in sequence every two years um, because we've done that um, as a as a dedicated practice since 2012, and we haven't had a poaching since we chose to dehorn. So it's it's just it's just ongoing all the time. It's 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 mayhem. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> the Irwin's got nothing on you guys. You guys need a TV show. Sorry, I lost you for a second. I can hear yeah. you now. Yeah, I think Mike cut out. But that's uh, that's really, really cool. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very chaotic in the background. Yeah. It's, I was going to say, but it, it's got to be, you know, an interesting life to live. And it sounds, it sounds really, really fun. No, you know, I think, I think the people who live on the reserve and it's, it's, a, it's, it's outdoors, mm-hmm. it's physical, it's, um, you have a lot of, you have a lot of crises, but it's also, you, you do operate in a very beautiful place. Yeah. And that's, um, it becomes a lifestyle choice, you know, because you are immersed in nature and with wild animals all the time. Mm-hmm. And you probably meet some really cool people along the way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it is pretty cool. Uh, hang on. So Mike just messaged me. Yeah. He said his, uh, his um, connection went blank. So he uh, said, yeah, we can go ahead and continue if you're okay with that. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. Awesome. Okay. Um, so just to dive back into your dad kind of starting with the, the 20, the 20 homes and then kind of moving into something natural as to, as to the reserve. Um, when did it go from having like the zebra to giraffes to that natural progression to like, you know, elephant or rhino or lion? Do you remember an instance when your dad came to you and was like, Hey, I'm thinking about, you know, bringing more livestock in, into the, into the area? Yeah, the f- the first one was when we. Uh, it's, it's it's all about um, the size of the habitat and and mm-hmm. what you're able to carry. So we um, after that first ten years, we grew to the, the first two thousand, which was enough land to bring on the white rhino, uh, but but not big enough for elephant or lions. So that section of the reserve remained um, soft safari, buffalo, white rhino. Um, and, and those plains animals. Mm-hmm. But at that time, in the early 2000s, something, as I mentioned, the Eastern Cape was starting to open up as a, um, a tourism, ecotourism destination. And mm-hmm. we realized that in order to, to maintain competitive, we were going to need to try and grow and bring on elephant and lion. And it just so happened at that time that a farm adjacent to us came up for sale. That was, I think, 3,000 to 4,000 hectares, which was just the amount of land that we needed. And mm-hmm. Dad managed to um, find a partner and, and buy that farm and join it to the reserve. And that was in the, in the early 2000s, and that was when we brought on lion for the first time and our first herd of 11 elephants. Yeah, that, I think that was back in around about 2004, Cool. So it was it was very much driven by an ecotourism competitive need, actually. Sure. Yeah, I've always found that to be really interesting. And, I, and I, again, I think it's just, you know, because we don't have those type of um, square acres to have this kind of animal. And I think that's a, a big misconception that I think a lot of people in the States get, that they think there's just like lions everywhere or there's just an <laughs> elephant down the streets and, and things like that. But I, I, I really do think that's the coolest thing. Yeah, I mean, you've got to tick a lot of boxes. You've got to have the right yeah. type of vegetation. You've got to get approval mm-hmm. from um, the Department of Environmental Affairs. And you've got to, obviously, your fencing also has to be able to contain the animal that you're bringing in. And th- that's also very costly and very important. You've got to get certificates of adequate enclosures. There's a mm-hmm. lot of um, legislation 
mm-hmm. um, that's, that manages uh, the decisions that you make and the way in which you, the way, the way in which you manage the animals that you, that you bring into the protected area. Yeah. I think that's the coolest thing. And, and the game and, and the, the game drives that Cariaga offers, I think is, is top notch as well. I, I went on one when I went to go visit and I thought it was, was incredibly well done. And, yeah, um, we've got amazing field guides. They 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 really, really passionate uh, about um about wildlife and and about being um educators of their guests and igniting that that willingness to become conservationists, that mm-hmm. that willingness to join efforts um and really connecting them to the plight of of wildlife, but also to the beauty of wildlife and the the, the pure um miraculousness of of an ecosystem that just that that is just in such incredible balance and harmony, it it always is um, very awe inspiring. Yeah, I think it's I, it, like you say it is, and and you know like you inspire the next generation and and the the game drives and and just you know educating the community. I think this is a great step into preserving what is you know all these endangered wildlife and just you know the environment and and everything like that. I think it's it's really cool what you and and at Cariega is doing. Um, for the Thanks, future of, 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 you know, wildlife. It's really cool. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Robert. It's been yeah. great talking to you guys. Yeah, no worries. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to meet you. And, and hopefully we get to um, do like another follow-up podcast. I'd love to talk more with you. Yeah. Are you are you going to be out in January? No, no, I, I won't be out this time, but I, Lord willing, I'll be out the next time. Okay. Well, I hope so. Then I'll, I'll actually spend a bit more time at, at <laughs> I, I, Yeah, I would love to. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Lindy. All right. So that was another episode of Coffee and Conservation with Lindy Sutherland. My name is Robert Pike. I'm again joined by my co-host, Mike Veal. We'll catch you guys on the next episode. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you later.